0: The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters.
1: ChatGPT, I think, is the very first example we've seen of this technology not only being put in the hands of ordinary people, so not just data scientists and computer scientists like me, but people that, you know, lawyers, people in retail, wherever. And it works. It does. It produces good results.
0: Hello, this is Becky Allison, and welcome to our first ChatGPT episode of The Hearing. Earlier this year, ChatGPT arrived. Presented as a free app you could type a question into and get an answer, it quickly became both a wonder and an object of ridicule. A wonder in that it appeared to give original answers to sophisticated questions and an object of ridicule when those answers were obviously wrong or contained imagined references. The next version of ChatGPT improved greatly and moved much closer to being a wonder. But what is ChatGPT really? How does it work? How is it built and can we trust it? And of course, importantly, what does this mean for lawyers? I put those questions to Daniel Hoadley head of data and analytics at Mish Reya, and his answers cut through all the confusion. The hearing.
1: My name's Daniel Hoadley. I'm head of data science at Mish Reya, which is a law firm in London. And previously I trained as a lawyer.
0: Hi, Daniel. Thank you very much for coming here to sate my curiosity today, because that's really what's gonna happen. Um, and I was wondering if we could kick off with the big question, which is, for our listeners, and for me, can you explain what is ChatGPT and how does it relate to AI?
1: So I think the simplest way to explain what ChatGPT is, is to basically describe it as a chat bot on steroids. It's an automated system that you can converse with on virtually any subject that you can think of. And the system will generate responses that are incredibly fluent and more often than not on point with the question or statement that you made.
0: Right. And, and is that different to AI? So I suppose when we think of AI, we think of things like the, the AI that's in the popular consciousness. So when I think of AI, I think of Skynet from the Terminator movies. I think of HAL from um, uh, Space, Space 2000, I think that's the sort of popular conception of AI. You know, most of what I've seen about ChatGPT has been people playing with it um, rather than Um, using it to conduct warfare or anything like that so where does sort of chat GPT sit on that kind of continuum of popular consciousness or not
1: so I think stepping back I think the question you're asking first and foremost is what is AI probably (laughs) which is which is which is a really massive difficult question it's one lots of people are having to really grapple with now because suddenly we found ourselves in a place where there are an increasing number of systems that are very performant very effective at the the use case they were built for and that's creating all sorts of problems where regulation is concerned so let's just try and kind of think about what ai is for a moment so ai in my opinion effectively at this point describes any system that we as people can interact with that behaves in a way that isn't purely deterministic. By that, what I mean is if you cast your mind back to kind of older chatbots that people might have used when they were trying to track an order on Amazon or ASOS or talking with their bank, the way those chatbots work. And, you know, it's tempted to just keep talking about chatbots. There's lots of different types of AI application, but let's just think about chatbots for illustrative purposes. The way those worked was that someone building the chatbot had to anticipate the questions that the chatbot was going to receive. Figure out a way to say, okay, I've just had this question, and this question is about this thing, and these are my available responses. And then so that they followed a deterministic you had to know what was going to happen and build rules for those contingencies. AI, in my opinion, is um, something different, and that's where the system approaches its task probabilistically. So it's trained to interpret or parse some trigger that we give it. In the case of Chat GPT, it's a question or some statement and the model then uses a probabilistic approach it uses statistics to determine what the most probable response should be that's quite it's, it's a difficult one to pin down here now but that's
0: really interesting actually the most probable response what immediately leaps from my mind when you say that is the most popular response not the most accurate response
1: that's absolutely correct and when you look at what ChatGPT is and how it was trained. So if we, again, if we just step back, so rather than saying, okay, these are all the possible questions I might get, and these are all the possible responses, and I'm going to define those up front, ChatGPT uses a thing called a language model. There's lots of different types, but a language model is in effect purely a probabilistic model for what word should come next given some previous context so if i have the sentence the cat sat on the, the the language model's objective is to predict what the most probable next word is given that previous context right and of course that does that probability hinges on the most popular completion
0: interesting
1: in its training data.
0: Well then then I'm going to I'm going to leapfrog slightly in terms of my questions and go straight to the question I had about the data. So what is the data that Chat GPT is getting trained on? I did a, a previous episode of the hearing some time ago, now a couple of years ago, about AI, where we really dived into the data that AI was being trained on in specific circumstances and the the potential consequences of that, if the data is wrong, then it's replicated hard and fast and at scale in a way that's quite hard to stop once the genie is out of the bottle. Mm. And so that made me think when I started seeing ChatGPT. GPT, my first question was, where is it getting the data? What is the data? Because surely that's, if it's that probabilistic model of what's the most likely thing that comes next, that answer is going to depend entirely on what
1: you fed it. Correct. So the honest answer is actually nobody knows precisely what data. Oh, um, that's very interesting. Yeah, which which causes lots of problems. So, ChatGPT at the time of recording, um, you can use over two variants. The base model, is, you know, the brain that drives um, the experience that you receive when you log on to ChatGPT. There's two variants. There's Chat. There's GPT three point five and there's GPT-4. They're both different versions of a language model. We don't know what data was used to train either of them. And we have better intuitions about what was used for 3.5, but there was no information released by OpenAI, the research lab that produced both of these models on, on what data was used to train either of them. What we do know is that the models, and pretty much all large language models, are trained on text that's available online, in addition to some very large corpora of text used by the natural language processing community to build these types of models. But the point really here is, is that we can't know what's in the training data. And just, as a, just in terms of scale, mm-hmm. The amount of data is unfathomable like it's truly colossal in either case
0: gosh because as soon as you say that it, the lawyer part of my brain is starting to go into overdrive it's starting to say well hang on a minute yeah if i don't know what it was trained on and i'm asking it a question that i am not an expert in yeah. how do i know that i can rely on that answer yeah if i don't know what it was trained yeah. on how do i know it's not spitting out something which is copyrighted or plagiarized um, that I'm yeah. going to get in trouble for. Um, and then the, the lawyer part of me is well, if I if I don't know what it was trained on, and I can't possibly know because it's unfathomably big, how could I possibly trust it?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think these are questions that lots mm. of people are, are wrestling with. And, and they have been. Um, you know, this isn't a recent thing. There have been language models of various shapes and sizes for years now. But the, you know, the current kind of run of technology really kind of got moving from around about 2013 with some research that Google released back then and then ever since the the size of these models has just grown and grown and grown and grown and grown. We've got to a point really where you kind of have to wonder, well, if to be effective these models require training data of unfathomable quantities, have we got to the point really where knowing what's in the training data actually doesn't help us very much? Because we're, we, you know, we're talking about oceans mm. of text.
0: How does that stuck up with um, going back to what we talked about earlier? What's popular versus what's accurate? If we, if they need so much data to train it on, but I mean, and I'd be very interested. I, I bet it's a question that you can't answer, and very few people can. And those who can probably are under some sort of embargo and wouldn't be allowed to talk to me anyway. But how do you determine? what you feed it. Because if you feed it the same lie 20 times and then you feed it the accurate Mm. answer once, presumably it's going to keep spitting out the lie because that's the popular option. That's the most probabilistic um, next right answer according to its data set. How are people, but if the data set is so big, how are they filtering it for accuracy is my my concern. I suppose they can't, can they?
1: Yeah. Well, so we're at a point where there is no foolproof way to steer the behavior of these models. So the, the the means to fully control what the model does simply does not exist at the moment. There is no way to reliably steer their behavior. One of the things that, I mean, and ChatGPT is an example of this. So you start with, imagine I'm building a trifle. <laughs> and the finished trifle is going to be ChatGPT. So my my first layer in the trifle, the biggest layer, is the base language model. So this is the system that was trained on colossal amount, amounts of text on a very simple objective that, given the sequence of word, predict the next token. So that's the first layer, the, the brain, that, that can perform that simple exercise. And then on top of that, in the case of ChatGPT... Um, it underwent additional training, so this is the next layer. Let's say the first layer was custard, yep. the next layer is jam. It did it underwent additional training to be conversational. So, it's, we've got this base brain. The next thing we're going to do is we're going to teach this brain to be conversational, so that we can speak to it in a kind of question and answer.
0: Which is why it sounds like you're having a conversation with somebody rather than exactly. And
1: it was trained. I to... presume
0: otherwise, if it just regurgitated a wikipedia article at you even though it may be more accurate you'd be like well that doesn't that doesn't sound very clever
1: yes potentially well yeah because it's you know the the, the brain was trained to basically say given this is yes. words just complete it and so that the, so that's your custard layer your jam layer is uh, now do that but in a more conversational way so stop generating at a sensible point don't just keep going on and on and on and on and, and generating the next word because we'll very quickly end up somewhere incoherent. So that's your jam layer. And then let's say you've got a kind of whipped cream layer over the top. The whipped cream is um, reinforcement learning, right? So this is a layer that happens last. And this is designed to steer the model's output in particular directions. So I don't know if you've used ChatGPT recently, but if you ask it a question such as, you know, what is my liability in tort for kicking my neighbor's. Dog, to pick a random example, uh, the model will say, I'm not a lawyer, but here are some things that are relevant to that question. And the I'm not a lawyer bit of the response comes from its reinforcement training, where people have sat down and said, If you receive a question that looks like this, your answer must include this caveat, because we don't want people to think that the model is capable of giving good legal advice.
0: Interesting. So I, I was going to go back to an earlier question now, um, but I think you might have already answered yeah. it. Which is, why is everyone so excited
1: about ChatGPT? Because it's, it because it's phenomenal. It's, it. it, it, it you know, we have to. I think with, with all of this, I think we need to be able to occupy two spaces simultaneously. We have to recognise that these technologies present a lot of problems a lot of problems that are virtually all really poorly understood. But at the same time, we have to recognise that they are compelling and so much better than what's come before. And I think the reason why people are, you know, people's imagination have been really kind of captured by this is it's the first time ChatGPT, I think, is the very first example we've seen of this technology not only being put in the hands of ordinary people, they're not just data scientists and computer scientists like me, but people that, you know, lawyers, people in retail, wherever. And it works. It does. It produces good results.
0: That's something I, uh, I did want to dig into. How accurate is it? Because I was, I remember observing in, when it first came out, and so I'm, I'm assuming that it learns as it goes, that the more people ask it questions, the, the more it learns.
1: Well, oh, okay. not quite on that. So... The models that underpin ChatGPT aren't learning on a continual basis based on the questions that it's, it's prompted with. The way this works is that OpenAI, subject to various conditions in their terms of use, collect your input questions and, under certain circumstances, use that input in future rounds of training. But these models are so big they can't be trained in the loop. Right. Okay. Interesting. I think
0: that I think the reason I wanted to ask, is it getting more accurate is because I remember when it first came out and it looked so compelling and I was mm. watching the discussions about it. Um, and one of the things that started to come up was that it would say very, very compelling things. And there was a case of somebody who had asked it a question about their genealogy mm it had spat out an answer which included some books that their ancestors were referenced in. And I think that this person went to the library and those books didn't exist. That the ChatGPT, the probabilistic model, had invented references including names of books and authors in order to um, back up its um, response. And that, to me, was quite terrifying.
1: Oh, yeah, it is. And so these... um, the term of art here for what you're describing is a a hallucination. <laughs> is, that, is that the term of art? Amazing. Right, yeah, the, that's <laughs> the model hallucinating books. And yet large language model, models do that because, you know, we have to go back to their original training objective. That Their training objective is just to generate the most probable next token. They don't, I mean, there is some argument around this. They don't necessarily have... A representation of knowledge as such. There are various levels of abstraction that you kind of fall into here, and it's a bit of a rabbit hole of thinking. But again, I think just stepping back and looking at what's happened over the beginning of the year, so at the start of the year ChatGPT was released. It was using GPT 3.5 turbo, turbo. So That was the original model that ChatGPT used. In March OpenAI released the newest model in the series, GPT 4, which was trained on far more data. We don't know what data, but the model's performance was greatly improved. And one of the things that I personally noticed when I was doing some testing was that hallucinations became less frequent. So, for example, I suppose kind of for a, a legal audience, the, the first question I asked GPT 4 was give me the The 10 key cases on whether there's a threshold of seriousness for defamation claims, I think it was. And I asked that because I kind of, it was an area I used to be interested in, I kind of need the answer. All of the cases it generated are real cases, and all of them are bang on point with the question. With 3.5, it didn't hallucinate any questions, it didn't invent any cases that didn't exist but it missed quite a few cases that were on point and its summaries of them were less were less compelling to me so this is going to be the type of thing that we see improve over time but it's a risk now definitely interesting
0: um i'm going to move on to talking about the downsides i know that we talk about the downsides a lot and i will ask you about the opportunities and the upsides later but what what are the sort of i mean i'm sure that my fanciful ideas about skynet taking over the world in a robot revolution is probably not where gpt chat, chat gpt is going to get us eventually but what are the,
1: the downsides of chat gpt that, that you foresee there are people really worried though about the skynet situation there are Oh no! Don't tell me that. Yeah, I know. I mean, it is—it's quite chilling. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So last week, I think, or the week before, a researcher called um, uh, Jeffrey Hinton, who was at Google, in effect, you know, dubbed the grandfather of deep learning, left Google because he didn't feel he was able to speak as freely as he wanted to about the risks of these systems and. He is one of these people, I think, who regards the risk as being existential to humanity, that we're hurtling towards a position where these systems will become too difficult to contain or will kind of be weaponized by hostile actors. So, the way I kind of think about the question that you've asked me, what the negative effects is, we have to start from a position that pretty much any technology Mm -hmm. has positive effects and negative effects they're, they're not neutral and there are probably too many negative consequences to, to talk about where language models and chat GPT are concerned. but th- let's pick a few off to begin with. so okay Number one, we, we don't know how accurate they are and um, there is a risk that they'll be deployed in settings where accuracy where correctness is really, really key and the model won't be able to deliver that level when we'll see some reduction in quality that may have a higher impact in certain settings than others. So if we start using ChatGPT as a diagnostic tool, for example in the healthcare setting, then you could see that accuracy would be quite important in that, in that context. And I think there are some moves to kind of begin thinking about how you regulate these things as medical instruments. So, there's, so that's one issue. The next issue is bias, and this is a really difficult one. It's a risk that exists with any system, deterministic or probabilistic, but we don't, because we don't understand what the data was trained on and we don't understand how these models work at an internal level, it is very difficult to control for the risk that the model output may be prejudicial to certain groups. So that, that's another risk. There is an environmental risk too. These models require colossal amounts of energy to train, and they require a lot of energy at, at inference time when we want them to make, when they want, we want them to do something for us. So these machines, when you're when you're using ChatGPT or any other large language model, you're interacting with infrastructure in a huge server farm somewhere in the world right. and that requires electricity. Um, so we, you know, that's another risk. These, And I think the fourth is, um, you know, probably could go on, but I think actually is when we talk about, you know, good effects and bad effects of these these technologies, good for who and bad for who? You know, it's very likely, um, as with most things, that the global north will see more of the benefit of these systems, but the global south will pay more of the price. You know, and you know, I think the, the, an article I think you mentioned, kind of when we were chatting before this, about um, workers in Kenya who are being used to, you know, help uh, do the reinforcement learning on these systems, being really poorly paid and potentially seeing really harmful content in moderation. So, you no, know, the risks and the downsides of these things are complex and, and kind of innumerable, arguably.
0: The hearing. On the outside, you're a lawyer, calm and cool, but inside there's a passion to perform, a drive to be absolutely on your game. You prepare hour after hour, day after day in the pursuit of excellence, relying on superior resources, serious preparation, and total confidence. That's the advantage we give you. Be your best with Thomson Reuters
1: Practical Law. I'm Kim Vanell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world. From the front line in Ukraine. Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover. To the heart of US politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts.
0: One of the risks, I think, of the downsides that's been playing on my mind, I was imagining that an AI robot taking over the world and then a the robot revolution was something I didn't need to worry about. But thanks to you, I'll start worrying <laughs> yeah. about that. Um, but uh, uh, yeah. I, one of the things that has been worrying me about it is that I am someone who I believe strongly that democracy requires access to true and accurate information. So that people can make decisions about their lives based on fact. And um, I've talked about this on the podcast before. And one of the things that I have seen a trend towards is journalistic outlets who are laying off their human investigative journalists and getting ChatGPT to write a chunk of their articles now. And for me, that idea that Chat GPT being probabilistic rather than accurate and investigative towards mm. accuracy. I think one of my concerns would be that the the age of misinformation will take a hyper leap forward in exactly the wrong direction because of Chat GPT. Um, what are your thoughts on that?
1: I agree with you. And I think this is why you have people like Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI at Capitol Hill. Telling Congress that you know these things need to be uh, regulated, and that this is you know this is another surface of risk. And when you start thinking about you know when, when we start talking about the benefits of these sorts of systems, you know one of them might include you know if you're trying to kind of you know law firms might be interested in using using these systems to generate very quick summaries of recent decisions given by the Supreme Court so that they can sound current and Competent with recent events in the legal space, and there's a risk. There's a risk that if you're using these models to achieve that purpose, you uh, you fall somewhere below the levels of accuracy that you'd expect. I mean, of course, that that's a risk when people do this too. You know, it's we can't necessarily equate the fact that just because a human does something, the answer's right and that's a false equivalence. I think what you have though is a le- level of accountability that you don't have.
0: Mm, that's what I was just going to yeah. say.
1: And you know, I, think, well, I don't know what you think about that, but kind of is accountability kind of part and parcel of accuracy?
0: I think it is. I think there's two things that I think about that. I think accountability is crucial, but part of accountability For a human, I mean, I used to be a trainee lawyer. I got things wrong and I got trained to do them better. And hopefully now I wouldn't make those same mistakes again. Um, But when you do that for a trainee lawyer, you are investing in them so that eventually they can become the expert at the top level of your organisation that you need. One of my concerns isn't just about the accountability. You know who's done it wrong. Um, and you make sure they do it better next time. You don't have that level of accountability with ChatGPT because you're not in control of the cream layer. Mm. Um, But also you're then not investing in the people at more junior levels because you're getting ChatGPT to do that work. When you get a junior person to review those cases, they absorb that knowledge they get better they become a better person in your organization if you skip that step by getting chat gpt to do it for free you're going to end up with a real i would say a a, a, a real problem of a, at the upper levels of experience
1: yes agreed and I, I, I wonder if maybe just trying to kind of step into the shoes of like an ardent supporter <laughs> yeah do that we do that do that because I don't want to sound like I'm an ardent, an ardent sceptic. I'm, you know, I'm a data scientist. I'm interested in this from all angles. But the, the, the situation you just described, I'd argue potentially stepping into this person's shoes, have existed probably for the all of the 2000s because we now rely on a huge amount of online content. And let's take the example of law students at university in England. Of, you know, most universities libraries will buy in you know their westlaw and Lexis and all those things but yet (laughs) a vast number of law students consume their law if they consume any from wikipedia or from google searches right and we have to we have to recognize that that's something that's a phenomenon in the narrow vertical of legal education that happens and in that situation we can't necessarily point to a group of actual human individuals that we can hold accountable for the accuracy of that content. And so I wonder if, mm. I wonder whether, you know, the, the advent of these models has just kind of thrown into starker relief an issue that's always, you know, has, has been there really since the rise of online information that provenance of the information matters to us. It's just that large language models make it really, 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 really hard to recover.
0: Yes. But I do think that, that, that what you have said, actually, you stripped it back to the essentials. I think between us, we stripped it back to the essentials, which is constantly reminding people that this is a probability or a probabilistic model, not an investigative model. Yeah. When you okay. ask ChatGPT a question, it is not going out and investigating and finding the true and accurate answer for you. It's finding the most likely answer, given how many words are floating around in its mind or its database.
1: Yes. Correct, and how many times it's seen that particular sequence yeah. of words. Um, I mean, there was some interesting research came out of UC Berkeley week before last, where they found, you know, this leads to another risk actually about IP issues, where they found that Chat uh, GPT-4, GPT had memorised uh, verbatim passages in copyright novels, including Harry Potter and Fifty Shades of Grey. And... When, they, when the researchers kind of probed this and tried to measure how well it memorised, they, notwithstanding that it's not possible to truly understand what data was used to train those models, what, what they, their finding was, or their conjecture, was that the reason why it done such a good job of remembering these passages from Harry Potter, or from Fifty Shades of Grey, is because there were passages from these books all over the internet in so many different places. And so at training time, the model saw these passages again and again and again and again and again, and again because they, they were coming from so many different sources, you know, lots of websites had either plagiarized them or quoted them, you know, quite properly. Mm-hmm. And the model had just seen the sequence. I can't think of, I'm afraid I can't think of any kind of quotes from Harry Potter or Fifty Shades of Grey, but it seen these quotes so many times it had memorized them really well. And so it generated, it was you were able to kind of get the model to start spitting out. Sections of these texts.
0: That's really interesting. I mean, I, it is a very long time in my career since I did any copyright law at all. But I would love to hear from some copyright lawyers. I mean, presumably the law is not in any state to cope with that.
1: It's well, it's being tested at the moment in the US. So about a year ago, mm.
0: uh,
1: Microsoft and OpenAI released a. Uh, kind of a forerunner to what we're seeing with ChatGPT. But instead kind of instead of being just normal, natural language, it was for code, it was for developers and data scientists. And what they could do is they could sort of say, I'm writing, I need a function that finds the area of a circle. And all of a sudden the model will spit out the code that you need to perform that calculation, right? And the the training data that was used there was open source code on a website called GitHub. Which is mm-hmm. basically the you know, it's the standard website that's used by developers to store their code, and notwithstanding that most of the code on there is open source, it doesn't mean it's license free. Yes, and, that's right. There is there yeah. are conditions attached to open source licensing. Correct, and that's being so there is a claim being brought by a class um, a class action the class of kind of software developers. Against GitHub, OpenAI, and Microsoft at the moment, um, which asserts that this is a breach of copyright, among other causes of action, and um, that looks like it's going to go ahead. So it'd be interesting to see what happens there. You know, this is this is these are really really difficult issues, aren't they?
0: And I think that's probably what we are going to have to do. It's going to be have to a bit of a wait and see game. And we're just going to have to sit back and wait until ChatGPT accidentally reproduces an entire Disney movie um, yeah. or some a company which is known for aggressively asserting its copyright and is very litigious about it and then we will see exactly yeah, exactly I mean, how it's going to fall
1: out there then actually. Yeah, because they, 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 they don't muck around in asserting their rights. Yeah,
0: exactly. There's, there's a few companies I can think of, but Disney is the one who springs to mind, who is mm. absolutely ruthless about asserting their copyright. Yes. Um, so it's, it, that's that's going to be one of the acid tests. I, mean,
1: I feel for the judge in that case, because <laughs> it, it were the judge to decide um, against OpenAI and Microsoft and GitHub, we end up in a situation where, in effect, the the infrastructure required, the data required to train these models becomes out of reach. And then you have to kind of then this almost probably brings you onto the benefits. You know, mm. is that a price you want to pay? Because clearly in this situation, there are many risks, but they do need to be balanced against the benefits. And a copyright, you know, a copyright claim like this. If it were decided in a particular way, you could theoretically, I suppose, choke the 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 produce of these models of the data required to train them.
0: So let's move on to the benefits then. What if we if we choke the ability? if that copyright case goes through and its successful, and we choke the ability for G- ChatGPT and others to be trained on the masses amount of data. Uh, and presumably when you talk about that much data, we're really sort of talking about the internet.
1: Yeah, we are.
0: Everything that's on the internet, because I can't think of any other repository of data as big um, as, no. as the sort of, as the one you're describing. So if we turned off the tap and they weren't allowed to just scrape whatever they wanted to off the internet, or I suppose it could go the other way and it can scrape whatever it likes off the internet. But every time you stumble across a, a paragraph from Harry Potter, you have to pay a royalty um, yep. or something like that, which would then prove presumably prohibitively expensive. Um, yep. What are the massive opportunities that humanity um, would be missing out on?
1: Well, it's hard to say. It's harder to talk about the benefits than it is to talk about the risks. And the reason for that, I think, is that the, the risks that we're talking about have been present. Kind of throughout the history of the development of language models you know it's these aren't new they're at least a decade old so there's been a lot of thinking about what the what the actual risks are where benefits are concerned i think we're still kind of in the potential benefits territory Um what we're looking at with these technologies is, is a completely new interface to the world's knowledge mm-hmm. we have a system that potentially you know all the caveats we've already described kind of you know we need to keep those in the back of our our minds but we have a system now that you know potentially makes it so much easier for people of all walks of life to access knowledge in a way that feels more natural so I think that I think that's the first one I think the second is that and this is going to sound a bit more data sciencey working virtually every product you can think of in this day and age in the information age is is language and um, working with language is really difficult because um, unlike you know nice tables of numbers the structure of language is is really difficult to work with it's unpredictable you know so working with language deterministically you know what what are all the questions I could possibly receive and what are the right answers is just not a feasible way to work but data scientists like me we finally have tools being made available to us that can help us achieve help us build things that we haven't been able to build before because it requires the ability to understand in big air quotes <laughs> language and that's a difficult thing to do without these models so you know, let's bring it back to a kind of a. Let's bring it back to a possible example. So, you know, this is a legal a legal podcast. So let's use a legal example. Mm. We believe in uh, one of the key principles of the rule of law in this country is that the law is accessible to all. So that would imply that the public should have access to all of the judgments given in our senior courts. Judgments are complicated. They require special training to read and understand. So could we use a model like ChatGPT to summarise them in language that is more accessible to the public who haven't received the training required to understand them? Could we use these models to make very esoteric public information more digestible, more understandable, more intellectually accessible to more people?
0: Well it's interesting because as I was saying that one of my concerns about this is the fast widespread of misinformation, what you're talking about on the flip side is an amazing democratisation of specialist knowledge, even more so than the internet has already given us, um, yeah. uh, which just, you know, sounds absolutely um, utopian,
1: frankly. Yeah. And, I, you know, I mean, personally, I've been using... Chat GPT a lot since it was released and it's helping me kind of like with all these kind of little things so you know, there are always bits of, of like a programming language that I just for some reason my mind can't retain like how I'm supposed to write this particular function or or something like that it, you know just just wasn't, won't stick and ChatGPT has been a really useful tool in just kind of actually kind of going uh, you know I need to do this transformation of that data from that to that. do you just give me the snippet of code I need? And instead of me kind of like going, oh, right, okay, I've got to search Google and probably look at Stack Overflow and find the right example and read it and then adapt the code I find to my use case, within a minute, I can have a solution to a problem and I'm moving on to some other element. So in some ways, I suppose you could say that a lot of this is kind of the evolution of search
0: well as you were saying that i was thinking it just feels a little bit at this point like it's google on steroids isn't it you know you need to be able to parse a lot of information very quickly and that's what chat gpt is really excelling at is it parses more data than any
1: human can comprehend really quickly but but i suppose that that you know you're right but that but, but what that also misses is all of the creative uses So we've been focusing on uses that require kind of access to objective knowledge. Mm. There are lots of creative uses where actually we want to go completely the other way. We want it to, uh, we want it to generate new things. You know, it might be, you know, some people have like you know been building these really rich, interactive kind of game experiences with these things. You know, so you know i mean imagine a video game designer you know who you have your characters in a video game and you know right now everything is done deterministically these are the things that this character will say and when they'll say them and you know but we could build video games that are uh, more unpredictable more surprising if we leverage large language models to you know perform these roles so there's lots of creative applications too it's just we we haven't really I mean you've seen this for a little bit longer in the image in the in the realm of vision and images. I haven't really had long to kind of explore the benefits, I would say though. And I think we need a bit longer to kind of actually sit down and kind of go, you know, what what of this is actually genuinely really useful and, and what is kind of a gimmick.
0: Hmm, I think well that, that puts me in mind of a couple of things, is it but firstly i would go back to your earlier point which thought was very well made just who does it benefit because at the moment anybody can go and use chat gpt but when i saw that news outlets were laying off journalists so they were going to use chat gpt to do a lot of the initial legwork my first thought was well chat gpt is free now yeah how long yeah. until now you've laid off all your journalists and you haven't invested in training people so they don't know how to do this mm. how long until you have to use GPT? gbt um, yeah. and now you're gonna be paying through the nose for it that was my first thought. it just looked a lot it's looked a lot, a lot like giving somebody a freebie getting them hooked and then mm. charging them an arm, an arm and a leg and maybe that won't happen maybe I'm, I'm doing a disservice but it seemed to me that, that was kind of the obvious trajectory of a business model for this because I mean that's the other yeah. thing as as a as an interested person, I'm looking at ChatGPT and think GPT and thinking, Aha, okay, so how are OpenAI making the money on this? Because this must have taken quite a lot of money mm. to oh, yeah. incubate and create, and somebody is going to be expecting a big return
1: on this. So how's that mm. going to be monetized? Um, and that takes you back to, you know, the um, you know, it's, it's, it's not a new point. Lots of people have, have been making it. But OpenAI was originally created as an open source research lab and you know it's a lot of people sort of said you know it makes more sense to kind of call it closed ai at this point um because you know you can't we don't know what the model was trained on we can't access the model itself you know so there's no way to kind of actually look at the, the model internals um but again you know there's always at least two sides To any one subject, and you know, OpenAI have themselves pointed out that there are potential very big downsides to making all of this information available, because in principle, you're giving, they say, uh, you know, maybe sort of, you know, rogue nations the keys to recreating these technologies and using them for, you know, really scary, nefarious stuff. So, you know, we're constantly kind of walking this line. You know, and at the moment, you know, one thing we can say is that it's difficult to, it's still quite difficult to reproduce this stuff yourself. You know, it's that it is getting easier, and what we're starting to see now is a move away from just kind of consuming these models, you know, via a website provided by, say, OpenAI, and more people are now kind of going, right, actually, I want to run these models on my own infrastructure i don't want them connecting to the internet i want to be able to use them in kind of complete isolation from the rest of the world and that makes it even harder to then govern what's going on very interesting
0: so for any lawyers out there who are looking at this and looking at the benefits of it and the very real benefits i think of being able to as you say kind of um, scan a vast amount of information and tell you very quickly what it means or the highlights because you know, one of the things that is absolutely true of the job of virtually any lawyer is the amount of time you have to spend scanning for information, reading documents, um, whether it be contracts or pleadings or judgments, whatever, you know, it's it's an incredibly information-dense profession. Um, But as you said, it's a very esoteric information-dense profession that you need to have an understanding of what these terms mean, because some of the words that we use as lawyers don't bear the same meaning as they do in natural language. They have a very specific technical meaning, thanks to case law and judge and judgments and uh, legislation. So I think for lawyers, there are some amazing applications here to help them be better, be more accurate, be more all over it. Now, as a data scientist who's using ChatGPT on a regular basis, what are your rules? What are the things that you do to make sure that you are getting good answers, good information that you can rely on, what the checks you do, what's the critical thinking when you get an yep. answer? How do you knowing all of the the downsides and the risks about the repetition of misinformation, what do you do to to protect yourself against them?
1: Yeah, well the, the first thing, number one, is we don't deploy it at the moment against any client data at all. Because that's not something that we can do um safely at the moment, because uh, we don't have the model running in in our own infrastructure yet. So I think that's the first thing I'd say. In terms of kind of actually just you know proceeding in a responsible, ethical way, the rules we hold ourselves hold ourselves to is, is number one is actually just be really clear first and foremost about what use case we are trying to to design for. So what is it we're trying to do, and why is that thing a useful? Thing for us to be able to do so that gives us a kind of a first sort of check on is what we're going to do going to be valuable but also is it going to be ethical and legal the second thing is we then kind of having done, taken that step is like how do we how will we know what good looks like so ideally for any given use case we'll already have some something to compare against, something to evaluate with such as you know this is what the lawyer did and we're going to use that as the reference point to work out how useful The model's output was. I think there's probably, I mean, at the moment, the way the way we're proceeding is probably to kind of think about how we use these models in three key areas Mm. within the context of the law firm. So the first is legal research. Uh, What role do these models have in in um, discovering legal information that's relevant to a particular matter and staying up to date with new information? The second is kind of e-disclosure, e-discovery, particularly with mm-hmm. early case review. So how can we give the lawyer the tools they need to very quickly understand what's relevant in a large body of information provided by the client? And then the third is probably workflow. So how can we use these models to make it easier to do just the things that lawyers have to do but aren't particularly kind of valuable to anyone but the law firm? So for example, you know. Writing narratives for time recording entries and things like that. So, so they're the kinds of areas that we're looking at. What we're not doing is, you know, kind of working with others to kind of go, what advice should we give this client? Yes. Um, because the legal service provider, rather, are, lo- are the lawyers. That's who the client pays for. That's who the law society, in this context, obviously a law firm, has licensed to provide the um, provide the advice. And so. But I think the other thing actually, the other area to think about that's really relevant for us and is you know often kind of seen as you know a major blocker is what are our obligations um under GDPR mm. and the general law of data protection and privacy? And how do we make sure that we're really thinking very carefully about the impact that this type of processing might have on data subjects? And you can very quickly see that You know, even seemingly innocuous use cases like, oh, you know, let's use a large language model to summarise judgments. You're very quickly into a place where you're processing personal data. You're probably processing special category data because stuff about their race or their medical history or any kind of protected characteristic is in there too. So it's it's hard. Mm -hmm. No, I hadn't even thought about that angle. You're absolutely
0: right, though. When you, you know, it's very different for a human being sitting and trying to consume a bunch of judgments to feeding thousands and thousands and thousands of judgments which contain personal data into into ChatGPT. That's really interesting. After my conversation with Daniel, I understood why ChatGPT seems so clever. And when used for discrete tasks, it really can help a professional cut down on research time but the tool is not designed to investigate and find accurate answers, rather to find the most common responses to a question and lawyers need a lot more than just the most popular answer. Stephen Schwartz became the legal poster child for ChatGPT when he used it to conduct legal research and then submitted to court in his filings all of the non-existent cases that ChatGPT had invented for him. He later said that he had read articles about the benefits of AI in a professional setting, potentially making legal research obsolete. I think many of us have probably read those same articles. But he stands as a warning for lawyers about accepting the outputs of AI without question. Where ChatGPT goes in the future and how it improves will be interesting to observe. I had dismissed my initial fears that ChatGPT would lead us to a sort of dystopian future, but I will end with a quote from a letter signed by Sam Altman, the creator of ChatGPT, Elon Musk and Bill Gates, among many others. And what they said was this, Mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority, alongside other societal scale risks, such as pandemics and nuclear war. Thank you to my guest, Daniel, and thank you for listening to this episode of The Hearing. Please do like and subscribe if you want to enjoy future content. And if you have any thoughts about the episode, then we would love to hear them. Please email us using Hearing at ThomsonReuters.com. It's goodbye from me.
1: The Hearing,
0: a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash The Hearing or subscribe via iTunes,
1: Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.